and to bless your holy done all things well we thank you that you've been a blessing to us in our lives uh, dear father we want to bless you and thank you for the gift of a savior the gift of thy son the lord jesus christ we thank you for him who loved his own which were in the world and he loved them even unto the end we thank you for jesus his willingness to go to the cross of calvary his willingness to die for our sakes there upon that tree thank you for the forgiveness of sins we thank you for the peace that passes all understanding that comes from him we thank you for the ability to be able to have a right standing with our god here this morning and we do just bless you uh, here during this time we thank you for each and every uh, individual here with us this morning we do think of those who could not be with us uh, as well Lord, we do just pray that your hand be upon us, upon each and every one. And Lord, that you'd lead and that you'd move uh, within our midst. We do just thank you that you're the God who's able to take care of the needs of your people. We do think of those who have ailments and those who have had struggles and, and difficulties and such. We do just think of how it is that, that you want to be our sufficiency in every way. And we do pray for ones who struggle and, and ones who are having hard times even, even at this time. We do just pray that you'd lead us during this time this morning, that you'd uh, be present with us. Lord, that you give grace uh, to both the speaker and the hearer this morning. We do think of Dave and the, and the ministry uh, that you'd provide for him to uh, share your word with real uh, effectiveness here this morning. We do just bless you in all things uh, for this time, and we pray it in thy son's name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite the children to come on down front. Pick a seat, sit on the floor, or whatever you'd like. Come on down. I have something for you today. I have a story today, and I have something for each one of you. Here they come. Oh, my goodness. It's a thundering herd. Help. All right, what a nice-looking group you are. You are the best-looking group of kids here this morning. All right. Now, I'm going to give you some... Well, there's one. I'm going to give you some animals here. Some little animals, little plastic animals. Do not eat them, all right? Do not put them in your mouth. I think there was a warning that said they were a choking hazard, so they're not made out of candy. You got one, all right. They're not made out of, they're not made out of chocolate. They're made out of plastic, and the plastic comes from China, so don't eat them. Danger, danger, danger. All right, I hope I'm going to have enough for everybody. What do you got here? Who's got an elephant? Who's got an elephant? Okay. There we go. Hey, there's a gorilla. Whoops, you got that? Here's another gorilla. Look at this one. Oh, did you get one already? All right. Is everybody getting them? All right. This is taking longer than I thought. I'm sorry. This isn't the best part of the story. There you go, young man. You got, uh, looks like you got a lion. All right, so we got all kinds of animals. I have more animals if anybody missed them. Did you get yours? There you go. All right. All right, so we got all kinds of plastic animals. It was in a package from uh, Hobby Lobby that said safari animals. 
So these are animals from Africa. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. All right, now I have some other animals, all right? This is going to take too long if I do this. Why don't you just grab some and pass them around, all right? Take them. I'll, I'll just, here, grab one and pass it on. Make sure everybody gets one. Here, can you pass the bag along? Can you do that? Here, there's one for you. All right. Now we have some other animals. So we had gorillas. Who had a gorilla? Who had a gorilla? Who's got a gorilla? There's a gorilla. All right. Who had a lion? Anybody have a lion? Somebody got a lion? All right. Now I'm passing out, I'm passing out unicorns. Okay, they have unicorns. And moms are going to love this because they have sparkles on them and the sparkles come off. <laughs> I've made an enemy out of every mother in the place. My hands are now full of sparkles. Isn't that great? All right, these are unicorns. Now, this is a serious question. What is the difference between the first group of animals I gave you and these unicorns? What do you think? You got it right away. First time, thank you. The plastic safari animals represent real animals, actual animals that you find on the, on the veldt in Africa or in the jungles in South America. These animals aren't found anywhere. They're imaginary animals. They're part of fairy tales. They're part of myths. There are no unicorns, real unicorns, only pretend unicorns. Boys and girls, listen up. People will tell you that the stories in the Bible are made up and imaginary, but that's not true. The stories in the Bible are like these plastic safari animals. They represent things that are real and true, even though they are fantastic and miraculous, the world being created in six days, the flood that took away everything except Noah and his family, all of those wonderful things, the birth of Jesus and his death and resurrection, all of those things, they really happened. They're real, they're truthful. They're not like the stories in other religious books other than the Bible that are made up and pretend and myths. It says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. It was not on tales artfully spun that we relied on when we told you about the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind. Take your animals home and remember, the things of this world, so many of them are like unicorns. They're not real. But the things that are in the Bible are like your safari animals. They are real. All right, you can take your seat again. I was thinking uh, this morning, I thought, oh, I should, have bought a, I should have bought a little bag of dragons to give to the boys, but that's all right. So a few years ago, after vacation Bible school in uh, St. Paul, we were, the, the kids made a mural. They spread it all around the fellowship hall, and the, and the boys illustrated the, the way the world looked after God created it and the girls illustrated it and the boys stuff was on one side and the girls was on the other and the girls had flowers and they had trees and they had butterflies and the boys had dinosaurs fighting there was a Tyrannosaurus Rex 
that had bitten the head off a brontosaurus and blood was spurting out. Why is that? Boys and girls, there is a difference, folks. This morning we are in the 19th chapter of Acts, and uh, we're going to read most of the chapter. I think, I think we should probably read it. If there's a lot of it here. Maybe, maybe we will read. I think we better read it, the whole thing. So turn in your Bibles to that. I, by the way, I read usually from the English Standard Version. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. This is Paul in Ephesus. This is happening as he's teaching uh, day, day to day in the, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus next door to the synagogue, but other ministries going on, on besides lectures. Paul is doing miracles and doing healings. Now, now, so by the way, miracles uh, done by the apostles were uh, certainly happened in Philippi because there was an earthquake and Paul and Silas were released from prison miraculously, so that was a miracle, but there were no miracles recorded by Luke in the story here in the book of Acts in, in Berea or in Thessalonica or in Corinth. However, Paul does mention, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, that his ministry in Corinth was, was basically validated by signs and wonders and miraculous things. So apparently there were some miracles. But miracles don't always have to be there in order for people to get saved. Sometimes they occurred to validate the truth of the gospel. That's what was going on. But every place where people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, a miracle has taken place. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... They're a new creature. There's a new creation. That's a miracle. A, a person who was, was a sinner and, and, and depraved and destined to go to hell is transformed. They're given a new life, a new start, a new beginning. They're made into a new person. That's a miracle. What more miracle do you need than that your life was changed by the presence of Jesus Christ in your heart? Amen? You are different now. That's a miracle. But other miracles sometimes happen in order to validate the gospel. And these are amazing. Even a handkerchief or an apron that touched Paul's skin, was, if it touched somebody else, was able to bring about a miracle. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So every time there is a revival, and people are coming back to Jesus, or new people are being one to the Lord, Satan will oppose it, and one of the ways he opposes it is that he will come up with his own miracles, or he will attempt to do it. There will be other signs and wonders, which are fraudulent signs and wonders, unicorn signs and wonders, if you will, not real signs and wonders. And this plan particularly backfired, didn't it? This man who, who uh, had the demon overpowered these fakers who were doing 
the devil's work. And it became known, and instead of the, la- the name of the Lord Jesus falling into disrepute because there were somehow greater signs and wonders, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. May Satan's plans always backfire that way. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what's happening here is, again, an authenticating aspect of what's real as opposed to what we're going to see what isn't, maybe the idolatry of Diana. What's real is validated when there is real repentance on the part of believers. Now, this is a, a sort of a theological argument that's raging in, among some circles, but let's, there, there is a once-for-all aspect to our salvation. We, we turn around from our sinful ways we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we come to Jesus, and, and we are forgiven. Is that it, with it with, as far as repentance is concerned? I don't think so. Because the old nature is still there and we stumble and we go back to our old ways sometimes and we need to repent and we need to get forgiveness. Now, there's once for all forgiveness, there's a new creation, but the spiritual battle is going on and and the, the life of Christ is being manifest in us and the old sinful ways have to be overcome. And so there does need to be repentance. So what we had here in Ephesus was we had believers who had come to the Lord in the church in Ephesus, but they still had some of their old materials from their, their magic practices. Now, what I remember, this is a long ago, but I remember in seminary our, our professor explaining this to us. Some research had been done. These uh, things were, were magic bands that people wore, like a little bracelet, uh, and, and they had writing on them. And then there were, there were also books, and these things were all like good luck charms. And they were, it was part of the industry there in Ephesus was to produce these things, and they were supposed to protect you, and, and they're supposed to help you if you're going to go on a journey to be successful. We're going to see, by the way, when we talk about Paul's journeys, he was writing back to the Corinthians before the famous shipwreck that we're going to get to in the book of Acts, and it's not even recorded in Acts, but he'd already been shipwrecked three times. When you went on a journey, you were, it, it was as bad as riding the L in Chicago, after dark. I mean, it was dangerous to go on a journey back in those days. And so people thought, well, how are we going to beat this? What's our insurance policy? And they would buy these magic books and carry them around with them. They had spells in them that were supposed to uh, basically keep the devils at bay and so on and help you. And so this was even after they came to Christ. They had these things in their house and were carrying them. And then they got convicted about it. And, and so they brought them, and they burnt them, and these were expensive, and they were saying, you know what, we don't need this stuff anymore because we have the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. I wonder if you've got any magic books in your life. When, when, when I was at, in Chicago, Forest Park Baptist, um, there was, people were coming to Christ, and one year in particular, 1984, I had the joy in this church that had, when it started out in 74, we had about 75 people coming, and I baptized 46 people that year. New, new converts. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And one of them was a, a wonderful guy who's gone to be with the Lord now, Lionel. 
And uh, Lionel was an African-American fellow, and uh, he was a pharmacist at Heinz Veterans Hospital. Um, and uh, just a wonderful changed life. And he'd been going there for about a year, and he said to me, uh, I, hey, Pastor Dave, I have to talk. We have to talk. So he came to see me one day. I wonder what this is about, because it seemed kind of intense. He said, Pastor Dave, I have a confession to make. Do you know what I do for a living? I said, yeah, you're a pharmacist at Heinz VA Hospital. He said, that's not where I make most of my money. I said, what? He said, I own a liquor store on the south side of Chicago. Oh, he said, I make way more money doing that. And he said, I, I was just saying, you know, I'm giving a lot of this money back to the Lord. And he said, Pastor, I was trying to do a ministry in, in my liquor store. And he pulled out a calendar, and I wish I had kept it. What's wrong with me that I didn't keep it? I don't know, some of you may remember those Sunday school calendars that would have a, a picture, a Bible picture of Sunday school art of Jesus doing a, talking to little children or, or, or Jesus preaching from the boat or, or the two guys on the road to Emmaus and Jesus meets them. Remember those? And then every day of the month would have a little Bible verse by it. You remember those calendars? You used to buy them. People gave them away, right? And, and then it would have the name of the church. But this calendar said Ace Liquors. It was a Bible verse calendar with Bible school pictures on it and Ace Liquors with the address on the south side of Chicago. And he said, Pastor, I'm doing a Bible study twice a week in the back of the liquor store. And he said, I put a gospel tract into every bag that has a bottle in it. And he said, last week, and I'm thinking, okay, see, I'm handing out the calendars of the Bible verses. See, I'm doing the Bible study in the back of the liquor store, and I'm handing, putting a track in every bag, and I'm, I'm fine. I don't have to sell the liquor store because that's where I get most of my money. Do you see the logic here? It's, and so then he said, last week, I dropped the liquor store into a bag, and I handed it to one of the brothers, one of my regular customers, and he reached in there, and he pulled it out. And he said, you're selling me this, and he holds the bottle, which is my biggest problem, and then you're giving me this? And he said, brother, that doesn't make any sense. And he walked out. And, and Lionel said, it was like getting a knife through my heart. I, I realized the whole thing had been a lie, and I, I just want you to know that the liquor store is up for sale. Now, I suppose an even better thing would have been if he'd have burnt the liquor store down, because <laughs> it was Chicago after all, but... Um, I mean, I, I, that, that, that part, I don't know, that did not bother me because I'll, I'll tell you what, if he did burn the liquor store down or didn't sell it, it would, there'd still be a liquor store there because the city gives out licenses. So there was no eliminating the liquor store, so he, he did sell it. Repentance, even on the part of believers, is needed. And there are going to be these things that we carry into our born-again life, even though we're new creatures in Christ, that we, we begin to realize because the Holy Spirit is working, you know, that's not right. And, and I wonder, <laughs> first of all, I wonder if you've got any magic bands or books in your life, or I wonder if you've got any liquor stores in your life. <laughs> I don't know what you got. But that's still there. That needs to go away. And this is what was happening in Ephesus. And what was the result? The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You know what really convicts people? When they see your life has been changed. 
because Jesus is present in your life. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Well, it's always good to have a plan. We know the rest of the story. It was going to be years before he got to Rome, but he would get there and at the government's expense, but he didn't know that yet. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is a New Testament name for Christianity, the way. It's a way of following, a way of living. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, no doubt Paul was teaching something like this in the hall of Tyrannus. Um, he hadn't attacked the temple in any way, but he was just preaching the gospel. And he was talking to, just like he had in, in Athens, after all. Here's, here's the real and living God. I'm proclaiming to you, Jesus, this unknown God that you guys worship here in Athens. He's got a name, and he's, he's appointed this man to judge the world, and so on. And so this had an effect. In Ephesus, it was very, very successful. People were changing their way of lives. And so he's saying this. This is probably true. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis is another name for Diana, the goddess Diana. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. This is a full-blown riot. And the city had lost control. And uh, a couple of years ago, up in St. Paul, Minneapolis, we were living through a full-blown riot. I was just sharing with somebody, the pastor. The church I pastored, uh, Joel, uh, was sitting with a shotgun on his lap, guarding the front of the church because the police were nowhere available. And a block and a half away, there was a strip mall burning down. It's kind of scary to be in the midst of a, in, an insurrection uh, there's no National Guard. There's nobody trying to keep law. Thugs are just doing what they want to do and looting places and setting them on fire. And there's something less, this kind of panicky feeling uh, must have been gripping the apostle and his friends. Although, I don't know, these guys are pretty well grounded in the Lord. But there they are. It's kind of a mess. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. This, this temple of Diana was considered in the ancient world to be one of the seven wonders of the world. This was a big deal. This was, uh, this was a tourist business. People came from all over the world to see the Temple of Diana, and, and, and no wonder. I mean, it was big. It was a 425 feet by 220 feet. It's as, if you can't picture this, by comparison, Herod's Temple was 90 feet by 30 feet. This dwarfed the temple that was in Jerusalem. Now, the Temple Mount was a massive complex of which the temple was only a small part. But just comparing building to building, the, the Temple of the Lord in, in Jerusalem was minor compared to this massive building, which, by the way, at this time had, a, had already been around for three centuries. 
It was built long ago. It had massive 60-foot columns. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was also 60 feet high. But don't forget the way these Greek buildings are built. Above the columns were the beams for the roof, so that went up maybe another 10 or 15 feet. This was a big, imposing place. And people came to see it. You realize something this side, you could play a football game in there. Sorry to mention football. I don't <laughs> Gophers won yesterday, by the way. But imagine, I mean, really, seriously, you could play, you could play a football, a modern-day football game in this place. It was gigantic, like, like one of our modern-day stadiums. And, and so they were proud of this place. They, they were so proud of it that when Alexander the Great had moved through, he looked at it and he said, you know, I would like to put my name on that building. And they said, no, you can't do that. He said, no, I, I really want to. And he offered them the whole load of booty that he had captured in his Asian campaign. He was going to pay them for that. This just reminds me of what we do today with our football stadiums. Don't, even our college football stadiums, some bank buys the name, right? Or some company. So the, where the Vikings will play, I don't know if they're playing at home today, but it's now Huntington Bank Stadium. Somebody bought the name. And that's where they play. Or maybe that's where the Gophers play. I don't know. What well, doesn't matter? And same idea. He wanted it to say Alexander. They said, no, thank you. You can't pay. We are so proud of this, we're not going to put anybody else's name on this. This is our deal. This is the kind of civic pride that they had. So Paul and his friends are in trouble because somebody has messed with their livelihood and their civic pride. So they're crying out in verse 28. Great is Diana, or great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Boy, that sounds like American politics. Here we go. It's crazy. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You ever been in a situation like that where the crowd has just gone nuts? And there is a, there is a power in that absolute power back in 1974 and the flyers were in the semifinals for the stanley cup they were playing the new york rangers in philly at the spectrum 17,007 fans and i was there that night with ron pantuck one of the deacons and every time during that season of 74 when the flyers really needed a game to win they played instead of the star spangled banner they played kate smith singing God Bless America. And every time they played that recording, they won. And they really needed this game against the Rangers. And the announcer said, and now, and everybody was expecting this, now, and now, Kate Smith's God Bless America. And to sing it this evening, ladies and gentlemen, I introduce Kate Smith. And they rolled out a red carpet onto the ice. And Kate Smith, and the roof came off that place for about the next 40 minutes. I've never heard anything like it. 
years later, I, I saw an interview on Canadian TV of a hockey player for the Rangers that night. He said, we looked at each other, and they said, it's all over. They knew they were going to lose that night, and they did. There's so much power that's released. You can imagine two hours of people screaming at the top of their lungs. Great is the Diana, Diana of the Ephesians. I, you know, frankly, I think that Paul's goose is cooked. But that's not what happened. So when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So probably there was a meteorite in there that they thought was a gift from the goddess. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for really, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, I want to do a little bit of a comparison here. The charges that were brought against Paul were of basically three things in nature. They were in verse 25. They were economic. This, this Christianity that's being preached is changing people, and it's going to affect our income. Then secondly, they were theological. Um, you know, he's saying that these gods that we worship are not gods at all, that there is only one God. There's a theological argument. And then there was the charge of damage to the civic reputation. If the word gets out that there is no goddess Diana or goddess Artemis, you know, regardless of how big this building is, who's going to come here? It's going to affect our, our reputation in the world. So it's very interesting how the town clerk refutes the charges. First of all, economic question. He says they're not plunderers. See, he hasn't, these men, they haven't done anything to take anything away from you people. They haven't gotten into the temple to steal anything. What he's basically saying here is, hey, in the marketplace of ideas, you might be losing, but you can't blame these guys for that. It's kind of interesting. Nothing to worry about here, in other words. Just, you know, keep doing your thing, and somehow maybe you'll make up the difference, but if not, well, it's not their fault if the truth wins out. Then the theological argument, and he says they are not blasphemers. See, they, have, they haven't attacked Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. So this is an interesting point. This may be tough for us to hear this morning, but it shows Paul's mission, mission strategy here, his missiology. What he was teaching every day was about Jesus, he was preaching about Jesus. He wasn't attacking Diana or Artemis. That was his missiology. He wasn't in a war against idolatry that day. He was lifting up Jesus, and that was enough of a war against idolatry. Lift up the truth, and that which is false will be naturally exposed. There was a focus in what he did on Jesus. The focus was not against Artemis. Do you see the significance? This is, a little, this is not grade school stuff, but this is, this is a very powerful truth. 
The focus was on Jesus, not against Artemis. So that the town clerk saw this, and he said, they have not blasphemed the goddess. And Paul had done the very same thing in Athens. Paul knew all this stuff. All these gods were nonsense. All these different temples were nonsense. But what he said was, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. See, that was true. I think he was being very sarcastic, but they wouldn't get that. They heard that as a token of respect, and he said, I see you have an altar to the unknown God. This which you worship, you don't know his name. I'm going to tell you about him. And he took off from that. He took that little bit of commonality that he had, and he went, and then what did he do? Then he talked about Jesus. And he talked about what was expected of them in response. And here in Ephesus, apparently he'd done the same thing. He might have launched a crusade against idolatry, and instead he launched a crusade for Jesus. And that took care of the idolatry for more and more people as the gospel proffered, prospered. And it was validated by signs and wonders, and it was validated powerfully by the fact that the Ephesians could see their brothers' and sisters' lives changed because Jesus had come into their lives. So he didn't need a war against the culture. What you needed was a war for Jesus, and Jesus would take care of defeating the culture. And I wanted to lift that up. That's a, that's a difficult thing to understand because we are under threat today from so many things. Let's not forget the missiology of Paul which is to be for something and not against something. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6? For our fight is against human foes. Therefore, we must go after those who don't agree with us. Is that what he said? That is not what he said. He said, for our fight is not against human foes, you know, but against these powers of darkness that are in heaven. And what's, you know, what's our weapon? Our weapon is the word of God. The truth about Jesus and so on. I'm not going to go through the whole Ephesians thing. And now I want to take us to something else, to idolatry, <clears throat> because it is a threat. And I want to point out that what is attacked in Scripture is not the idolatry of the pagans, but the idolatry of God's people. Uh-oh, what did I, what that black lady, lady used to say? Be careful now. Be careful now, because we are easily led into idolatry. Of course the world is idolatrous. Of course the world is immoral. Of course the world is full of hatred, etc. Of course. But the church is different. Right? Right? It should be different. And if it's not, then we need to preach against the idolatry in the church and the immorality in the church and the corruption in the church and clean up our own house. And when the world sees that we are cleaning up our act, the word of God will prosper and the gospel will grow mightily. Do you, you understand what's being said here? This is difficult stuff for us to imagine. We were going through First uh, John in our Sunday school class up in Garner. And the, the elder who was teaching the fifth chapter came to the end of the fifth chapter of the book of John, and he said, uh, it talks about, if you want to turn to that, you can take a look, because I'm going to look at it. First John chapter 5. At the very end, John writes, 
things about God. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And we expect the book to end there, but it doesn't. Then he says in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What? This elder said, I just don't get that. And that was the end of our study. Well, it's very important to get that. Because in the midst of all of these wonderful truths about Jesus and the power of Jesus to protect us and keep us, he's saying, oh, one, play one more thing, keep yourselves from idols. When did that become a problem? Well, when wasn't it a problem? It's, it's all throughout Scripture where God's people get involved in idolatry. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. Constant lapses. When, when uh, Rachel and Leah are feel, fleeing with their husband Jacob, and they're leaving, they're leaving their father, Laban, what does Rachel take with her? Do you remember? The household idols. What? She's got them hidden under the saddle. Uh, of, and, and here's something I read. This is recently discovered, so maybe you don't know this. But these were metal discs. And what was recently discovered from some, you know, deciphering some of these ancient clay tablets and so on is, oh, you know what they were? If you had them, that was a, that was a sign that you possessed the family's inheritance. Oh, does that make sense now that she stole them? What were they complaining about as he was telling we should leave? She said, our father isn't giving us anything. Go, let's go, right? That, and Rachel says, plus, I'm taking the inheritance with me. And you turned them in when the old man died, and you got everything, you see. That's why they took them. Was that any less of an idol? What was she saying? What we need to provide for us is my father's inheritance. Oh, now we're uncomfortably close to 21st century problems. I, somehow, I need to have the dosh. I need to have money in the bank, or God will not take care of me, or I'm, I'm insecure. And so I'm going to do this, even though this thing is not of God, it's an ungodly thing. I'm going to take it along, I'm going to hide it away, and then we'll be okay. With this ungodly thing, we'll be okay. And later on, uh, Jacob has him bury those things underneath a tree someplace. We're going to leave that behind. We don't need that anymore. Idolatry keeps showing up. The Israelites, after Joshua, turned to Baal immediately. Why? Because Baal was an agricultural god who would assure them of success in farming. And they remembered even after 40 years in the wilderness what it was like in Egypt. And in Egypt, you irrigated. But in the Holy Land, Palestine, you didn't. You had to depend on the rain. And if the rain didn't come, the crops would die and you'd all die. And so they needed Baal because Baal provided for rain when it was needed. Supposedly, I'm sure it didn't work any better than anything else, but that's what they thought. And then Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, gets seduced by one of his, or several of his many wives into idolatry. He becomes an, the guy who twice God had appeared to. He saw God with his own eyes, the pre-incarnate Christ, of course. What a privilege. And he blew that off and went right back to idol worship. It keeps popping up. And it becomes a warning in the New Testament. The new Christian converts everywhere who came from a pagan background had this danger that they would lapse back into idolatry, which is one of the reasons why they were not to eat meat sacrificed to idols, because where you bought it was at the temple. 
These pagan temples were basically ongoing barbecues. And after the meat was cooked, you could buy it, and it was a cheap way to get good meat. And maybe it was very tasty, for all I know. But this is not a problem, except for the fact that this was a pagan temple. And there was idolatry, and there were temple prostitutes there. And it was an un unclean place to go. And you really didn't want to go back into that way of life again. And so the New Testament Christians were warned against doing things that would cause them to stumble and lead them back into idolatry. Idolatry is something that is a danger for believers. An idol is a God that we create ourselves that we can control and who will give us what we want. I said a few weeks ago it was like Chief Pontiac in the hood of my dad's car. An idol is a God that will go where you turn the steering wheel. Okay, We're in charge. The, the God who is there the real God who sent his son to die on the cross for us, who is God, fully God, he does as he pleases, Psalm 25.3. We want a God who will do as we please. And so people will even do that with the living God. And this is precisely what the northern kingdom did. They, they built uh, two places of worship that had scaled-down versions of the living God. They took the living God, the real God, and they said, we're still worshiping him, but we created our own scaled-down, cut-down version who doesn't require so much of us and who will do what we want, and we will make decisions, and we will drive the bus. Is that your God? Is that the God of the Bible? What does God say? He does things his way, and he wants us to do things his way. An idol encourages fleshly indulgence, or at least permits it. So the pagan temples were centers of prostitution. And what do we read in the, in the Old Testament? In the most corrupt days of the Israelite kings, there were prostitutes working in the temple in Jerusalem. It's terrible. These were God's people. The pagans, you kind of expected it, but God's people were indulging in all kinds of immorality, and an idol encourages that or permits it. And what does God say? You shall be holy, for I am holy. We're to separate ourselves from all that worldly corruption. Last week, on Thursday, I was in, up in Central City, and, and it was a group of Berean pastors. I was allowed to enter that sacrosanct group, and it was wonderful. And they were interviewing a candidate for the position of pastor at that church. And, and one of the pastors asked, I want to ask a very tough question. Uh, are you now or have you ever been addicted to pornography? Pornography is so easy to get. And it's there for, it's a trap. It's a trap, it, and, it, and it can become a source of pleasure for a person, and it can give them a sense of worth for the, while well, they're using it, and it's an idol. And God says, no. And the world today says, oh, that's normal. Everybody does that. Isn't that right? And God says, no, my way is different. You shall be, you separate yourselves. Holiness means to separate yourself from these things that are carnal and fleshly and lustful and worldly. And you live my way, a holy way. God requires holiness, Leviticus 19.2. An idol promises success, easy success. Idol's a good luck charm in agriculture, trade, love, whatever. It's a good luck charm. God promises what? Jesus said, here's my promise to you. In the world you shall have trouble. But courage, the victory's mine. I've overcome the world. I promise you that when you go through the fire, it will not harm you. 
well, it might burn you alive, but you're going out into eternal life. It's kind of difficult what he does. See, what was it G.K. Chesterton said? Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they'd be uh, absurdly happy, uh, completely fearless, and in constant trouble. Sounds like fun, kind of, doesn't it? Let's follow Jesus and be happy and fearless and constantly in trouble. Because that, that's what Jesus promises us. But an idol says, oh, everything will be all right. Everything's going to be fine as you're on your merry way to hell. It's not going to be fine following an idol. It is going to be fine. You're going to go through the fire, and even if you get extra crispy by the end of it, you'll be in heaven, and not a hair of your head will be harmed. Because you're going to live forever. Idols, God, all right. An idol conforms to our culture. An idol is, is everything our culture wants us to be. An idol is a God, a way of thinking, an ideology even, that conforms to us and acts like us. This is us. Materialistic, lustful, selfish. We don't have idols that are little metal objects or stone objects. Now that We have ideologies in our day. And it's always, you know, gaze at your navel, look after yourself, look out for number one, you know, grab for all the gusto you can, all, all kinds of this selfish nonsense. That's what it says. That's our culture. Get more stuff and you'll be more happy. Whereas God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God's different from us. Praise his name. And he calls us, to be like him. Now, a final word on this idolatry business. Worship in English means to ascribe worth to something. And my take on this, maybe you've heard this before, but this is after lots of thought on this. Have you noticed this? That if you ascribe worth to something, you will derive your sense of self-worth from it. Once I had a Datsun 280Z. Yeah, it was a nice car. <clears throat> We'd do 90 miles an hour in second gear. So I heard. Anyway. <laughs> and I was doing a visit to, with some church visitors and, and a young couple, and they saw the car. And, and this young lady said, uh, you know, I had a boyfriend that had a car like that once. She said, sometimes it was a little hard to tell him apart from the car. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, you, you got this, so you got this really nice car, and it kind of gives you a sense of self-worth. Ouch. You got it, your house. You finally got the dream house. You got it decorated the way you want, and that's your... There's nothing wrong with that, you understand. But if that's where you get your sense of... How would you feel if you lost it? Is it going to destroy you, too? Are you kind of so bound up in the house that if you lost the house... It would destroy you. This is tough stuff. How do you feel when the Cornhuskers lose? I'm not joking. I've known a lot of people. I looked at one in the mirror this morning who lived and died by a sports team. What a miserable decision that is to make if you're from Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, it's great in those rare occasions when the team you're rooting for wins 
you know, the Stanley Cup or the World Series or whatever. Yeah, I've rooted for teams. It's, it's a great feeling. And what you realize the very next day is they got to do it again next year. And so you become a fan. And the, fan and, and the happiness, the joy of your life depends on what some team does. It's idiotic, isn't it, when you think about it? But if you're deriving your sense of self-worth from that, you've made an idol out of that. You get that? This is actually serious stuff. This is no joke. Do not do that. It is an illusion. It's a lie. There's all kinds of things we can say, okay, that makes me feel worthy as a person. There's only one person that can do that for us in an authentic way, and that person is Jesus Christ. We sang it in the hymns. You alone are worthy to be praised. That means you alone is the, are the source of my self-worth. It doesn't matter if people don't like me. Think about the poor Apostle Paul. A lot of people didn't like him. Even Christians sometimes didn't like him. But he always knew that he was loved by Jesus. And you couldn't break that man because of that. You'd be an unbreakable person and derive your sense of self-worth from Jesus. There's a gentleman at the back there that's delivering some food for a group, so take it from him. Thank you. Anybody? RG, thank you. It's very important. It's for a group meeting later. All right, so I must have gone on way too long. It's time to quit. <laughs> One more thing. Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 11 and 12. What does it tell us? The very worst kind of idolatry is the idolatry of our own self-will. Who's on the throne of your life? From whom are you deriving your sense of self-worth? Do you have to win every argument? Do you have to get your way all of the time? That is not what God desires of you. Hear this. Cast down every idol and worship God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul who waged war by lifting up Jesus. And help us to do that, Lord, in our lives. And Lord, we pray for the authenticating power of the Holy Spirit to be evident in our lives. You may not grant us the grace of being able to do signs and wonders. That would be wonderful if you would, but you can certainly work in our lives and change us and so there will be that convicting evidence that Jesus is real because he's actually making us like him. Lord, help us to show that evidence to our friends and neighbors and family that Jesus is at work in us and help us to be willing to share a reason for that hope that is within us. Lord, please, we pray for your blessing in this church that we might be a people who have no idols, who derive their sense of self-worth from you alone, Lord Jesus. We worship you and you alone. In your name we pray, amen. The team sings, we hound in spirit, mind, and body without fault when our Lord Jesus Christ comes. He who calls you is to be trusted, he will do it, amen. All right, have a seat. We're going to see a missionary video now. <laughs>